All right, it's springtime, and you know what that means. It means summer is right around the corner, and you don't want to be spending these beautiful days inside cooking and chopping vegetables. No, you want to be outside enjoying fresh spring air, and you can eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Because every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, it's dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in what? Two minutes. You choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including calorie smart, keto, protein plus, vegan, veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. I love Factor Meals. They're absolutely delicious. I don't have to worry about it. They're just in my fridge. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash queerthemusic50 and use code queerthemusic50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Welcome to Queer the Music, the podcast from Mercury Studios, celebrating the LGBTQ plus anthems that have soundtracked and shaped queer lives. I'm Jake Shears, and the reason why I wanted to do this podcast is that for years people have said to me, oh, you're such a trailblazer, you did so much for so many people by being out and queer and making music and being true to yourself. Well, there were a lot of people that did that before me, and there will be a lot of people to do it after me. And I'm curious about their stories and curious about how the songs were made. I'm hoping this podcast can shed a new light on a lot of artists and stories that may not have been totally told yet in the public eye. Songs you thought you knew, maybe songs you've forgotten about, or maybe songs that you've never heard before. If this is your first time here, stick around, because today I'm joined by a brilliant artist who tells me how their iconic track came to life. And along the way, we'll be talking about the attitudes and the laws that formed the backdrop to this song. I'm going to whisk you back a quarter of a century to Britain in the late 80s. I try to discover AIDS was cutting a swath through the gay community, and in 1988, the UK's conservative government passed Section 28, making it illegal to discuss same-sex attraction in schools. The stigma of being gay meant many people hid their sexuality, and most queer celebrities were closeted. The media was rampantly homophobic, and queer bashing was rife. But despite this hostile climate, there was a vibrant gay scene with everything from leather bars to tea dances to alternative nights... And the charts were full of gay pop stars. And one of them is my guest today, the incredible Andy Bell. Andy was right there in the thick of it, out and proud from the get-go, fronting synth-pop duo Erasure, who sold over 20 million albums and had an incredible 17 top 10 singles. It's amazing. Maybe the most enduring of all their records is the 1988 hit, A Little Respect, which, to this day, still gets crowds singing their hearts out. Don't you tell me no, 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 don't you
How are you, Andy? Hello. I'm fine, thank you. I'm so happy that you're here, and I want to start out talking about what do you remember specifically about recording this song? Well, it's slightly vague, my memory, but it was a third album that Vince and I had, Wonderland Circus, then Innocence, and the Innocence was written at his house. He lived in Holland Park, this little muse house, and I just remember... And it's generally the case. The best songs seem to write themselves, which I'm sure you know. And that's including the lyrics and including the melody. And it was mostly written on guitar, the album. And I remember Ship of Fools, that wrote itself. And A Little Respect, half wrote itself. Um, What do you mean by half wrote itself? Well, I mean, we were writing on guitar and... um, what usually happens is Vince will start strumming along. He's a chord collector. He'll come up with all these chord progressions that he's written down on paper and then play them to me. And he'll say, do you like this one? Do you like this one? I'll say, yes, yes, that's really good, that one. I think A Little Respect was the last song on the album, which usually happens for us. It becomes the first single, the last track. Anyway, on um, A Little Respect, I was thinking, oh, can we do something that's very up-tempo and kind of exhilarating, not dissimilar to flamenco, but something that's really going to lift you up, you know. So he started off with that guitar riff, which opens the song, that which kind of seems like it's gone down really well, you know. You know it instantly. It wasn't written as an anthem, a gay anthem as such, but it was, I always like coming from a cathedral school, you know, I like... I love hymns, and to me, when you're writing a song, I just want it to be as uplifting as a hymn, but at a fast tempo, you know, so that was the idea behind the song, really, was just to have something that was really uplifting, and people can lift their arms up in the air on the dance floor and stuff, you know, and I suppose just opening the song with I Try to Discover is exactly that, you know, you're just looking for something, you're searching for something. And I think at the time, as you said, it was a very lively gay scene in London. And I would be going to Heaven, the nightclub, every week. I mean, it was a kind of a free-for-all, but you never got picked, you know? When you When you're going out cruising, I don't know. Becoming famous, you know, you have to become a diplomat. And that almost made me overcome my shyness. Because you had to. Yeah. People came up to me and started talking to me. Otherwise, you know, if I'd ever met anyone in a bar or anywhere, even on the tube, I would have to be compelled to go up to them, which I did a few times, but nobody ever seemed to come to me, ever. So I don't know if it was to do with my personality or shyness or whatever. So that song is really about not wanting to approach people, really. Amazing. Yeah. Because it, I feel like with the lyrics, it, it's almost there's moments of it that could be to a lover. There's moments of it that could be to the world. Yeah. It has both those elements to it. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like there are so many people, you know, there are so many people out there in that song. It's almost like you have to be really special. You know, if you're the one, kind of come up and prove to me that you're the one and treat me as you wish to be treated. That hymnal quality to the song, did that sort of tie in somewhat to the concept of The Innocence? I suppose in some ways, yeah, it was a pseudo-gospel record, I suppose. And um, yeah, we had the stained glass window on the front, which 
I'm surprised we got away with it because it was, uh, I don't know if they have copyright control on stained glass windows, but <laughs> it was from a French stained glass window somewhere. Um, yeah, but it just seemed to work really well and kind of just fell into place. Tell me about your songwriting and your songwriting confidence by the time you got to The Innocence. Like, where were right. you with your songwriting and yeah. how did it feel? I wrote one song on, on Wonderland, which was called Senseless. But I suppose I didn't realize when I was young, going around to my aunties and people, I would, they said I always took poems with me around there and read them and stuff, you know, which I completely forgot that I did. And I do remember when I first moved to London, it was to join a band. And uh, so I was probably in a couple of bands before I met Vince. But yeah, I used to write poems and then make up a metering or, you know, as you're walking down the road, in rhythm of your walking, I would get like a drum pattern rolling in my head and then write the song to that drum pattern. Yeah, my first song was about um, Alice in Wonderland, like, pack a suitcase like toothpaste squashing from the tube. Oh, hurry up, white rabbit. Oh, dear, I'm going to be late. What's the time? Why know the time when you got no time? So... Um, uh, it's funny how we remember those, yeah. those early... And I feel like you and I have... Something in common as yeah. far as going to the big city. Yeah. And, you know, I moved to New York when I was 20 with just grand ideas about I don't know what, but you came to London. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing how, when I think about it, you know, back the bravado we had. And um, really, I think like, gosh, because I loved my voice. I still love my voice. And I used to think like, I'm going to be as big as Elvis Presley and all these kind of things, you know. But I think it's just the folly of youth. But I think, well, that's just what stood me instead to have the audacity to kind of go to auditions and things, you know. But anyway, from beginning, starting to write with Vince, I think maybe the one song I remember is Victim of Love. And I kind of came up with a bass line and the song came out of the bass line. And then with Sometimes, which was also on the album, again, it was the guitar riff and the trumpet solo. So it's kind of weird how you just get these attachments to the song or something, or just parts of the song, and then you build them up together. And when did you move from Vince's house into the studio? I mean, Vince wasn't overly happy because we had Stephen Haig on that album. You know, he was a huge mega producer and he had done New Order and Pet Shop Boys and stuff. So I think Vince was a bit concerned with releasing his control kind of thing because Steve had a lot of input with guitar and things. And how was that balance? How did that sort um, itself out? In the end, I mean, I was kind of locked up in the studio quite a lot with Stephen. I remember his girlfriend was in the studio as well and she used to think I was an alien that had come down from somewhere. Some well, there's a very eth yeah. ethereal wild voice that you've got. Yeah, yeah. so I, I kind of remember being in the studio and singing over and over and over, like for a little respect, especially. And Stephen was, not, not that he was a taskmaster, but he kind of had this idea in his head how he thought each line should sound. And he was one of these people that kind of micro-edited. We'd never done that before, mm. you know? And when you finished making this song, since it was the last song on this album, yeah. do you know when you have something special, when you get that special song? To be honest, I didn't even think about A Little Respect. Ship of Falls was the first single. And even though we kind of were known for our more dance numbers, it was funny because the more successful singles were the slow tempo ones. So, yeah, I think Respect was the third single because we had Ship of Falls, then Chains of Love, then Respect. I'll never forget seeing the video for Chains of Love for the first time when it came out. 
what do you think it is about this song specifically? I mean, it's 267 million streams on Spotify. It's uh, a massive song. I don't know. Um, I mean, to me, it's the exhilaration of the song. And um, as you say, you know, Vince, I mean, it's funny because that's a guitar part, the intro of the song. And he's really renowned for his synth parts. I mean, when we're in the studio, I mean, we, we don't work very much together in the studio, apart from writing or mixing, because he'll spend eight hours on a hi-hat with a synth. And I'm just like, fuck <laughs> sake, God. you know, but that's his thing. It's meticulous. He's yeah, a meticulous he loves it. Producer. He loves it, you know, and then sometimes, because, I mean, I love synths. They're in my blood. But sometimes I can't differentiate between that sound from eight hours ago to what it is now. I mean, it, it's lovely. I mean, because it's a bit like listening to I Feel Love by Giorgio Moroder and Donna yeah. Summer and just that... I've always said to Vince, you know, when, it, when we're on stage, my ultimate thrill would be to come out of a music box on the stage and lift up, you know, like a ballerina. And then with the laser beams, to me, are the synth lines, which kind of give you an acupuncture healing. I love that. <laughs> I love that. I mean, I think about the first images I ever saw of you, and you were so flamboyant. Can you talk about when y'all started and you were out from the get-go? what that moment was like and how did the, you progress as a performer being out at that time? In the beginning, as I say, I was really, really shy. I was petrified. And when I went onto the stage, one of our early shows was at Heaven, the nightclub. And we went on and I wore this um, all-in-one see-through leotard with sparkles on it. And as we do. Yeah, as we do. <laughs> and I didn't have any pants on. I thought, well, I'll just, I'll have three pairs of tights underneath and that'll be fine, you know. But apparently you could see through everything. And then I didn't, Vince then had a BBC computer, which is like clockwork. And then he programmed the lights as well. So in between all of the songs, it was just darkness. You know, we didn't have a follow spot and it broke down. And I thought, like, what do I do now, you know? And uh, the only thing I could do was start doing like Alice in Moyer impersonations and Beatles songs, you know, a cappella. And I thought, shit, that's not going to work. So just developed this character. After a while, it just grew and grew and grew. And then when we started going and playing in the US, I just thought, right, I'm going to just do this like as camp as tits person that, you know, it's not me, but it's just like a effervescent over-the-top kind of person that there'll be no question of if you're gay or not you know people wouldn't even have to ask i mean i've got to thank you yeah. because wild was one of the first cassettes i ever had and i remember i wanted your hair on the <laughs> and I, I i went to my cousin jackie sue and i had yeah. her give me a little oh, perm because no. i wanted some oh, you had, yeah. you had oh, just wavy yeah you had a, a, a yeah. wavy hair on oh. it and i wanted that wavy hair and i got it <laughs> you see i always wanted debbie harry hair you see and i always wanted muppet hair so you know when they had crimpers in the yes. 80s so we used to get the crimp your hair and back comb it and all that stuff but anyway what i was going to say was when we did ola moore um, we were doing these at TVs all over the place. We went to Italy. And I don't think I've really been 
a very good pop star as far as fashion goes, you know. So I'd always just go and buy things at the market in Kensington and places like that. And I thought, well, I could just be Madonna because she wore a basque on Open Your Heart. So I thought, well, I'll just wear a basque. That'll be fine. And just wore these cycle trousers and a basque. And we went on this Italian TV show and I sat on Vince's lap. And the whole audience was whistling, and I thought it was a term of endearment, but it was actually their form of booing. So, really? So I was thinking, like, oh, God, they love me, and <laughs> prancing around on the stage. So little did I know, and thank goodness I didn't know, because it would have been devastating. Yeah, and, and there must have been moments that were really hard, as yeah. far as with the press yeah. and with how homophobic the press was. There was. You, you know, thank God, we are in good company, because Jimmy was around a lot. Jimmy Somerville from the Communards. They were doing loads of TVs as well, so we kind of hook up quite often. And, um, you know, I remember girls trying to get into the taxi or the car when we were leaving something and saying, oh, I come with you, I come with you. You know, I said, well, well, I'm gay. And they said, well, I don't care, I come with you. They used to get us mixed up, me and Jimmy, all the time. But, um, yeah, it's really weird as well how some of the most homophobic reactions that we had were in places like just outside of Amsterdam and places like that. So it always catches you completely unawares, you know, and touch wood... It hasn't happened that often, but when it happens, it's, you know, it's dreadful. It's devastating. It's devastating to feel that way. And I just feel like you were so brave doing what you were doing at the time. I mean, when Always came out as a single, it was 94, and it was the year I came out. And, you know, you were one of the only... And I've been listening yeah. to you for years already. And you were one of the only singers that I knew that was gay, that was like me. And I can't, I can't tell you how important that was to me. Well, it was sad because, uh, I mean, I loved that we did it that way because I feel like it was the correct way, you know, and I feel so grateful now that Little Naz and Sam Smith, they're amazing global superstars, you know, which in our day, you couldn't get that far, you know. But, um, yeah, we supported David Bowie and we were the last band to go on and we went on, I'm not going to tell you where it was, but we got pelted cups of water tubes of toothpaste it was they were the sponsors and um you know not one missile hit me and it was like i couldn't speak the language uh, the last song was a little respect so i went to the right to the front of the stage vince kept saying come on we're going off now 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 i said no we're not going off and i went straight to the front and right there fuck you you fuckers you know did the song and they were all cheering and the whole back of the stage was lined up with military police And I was like, shit, who are they here for? You know, and then we had to go off straight into an MTV interview. And I was just like livid. And I was just about to go into a moaning diatribe. And Vince just put his finger up to his lips and just went, shh. I said, oh, it was fantastic. It was one of the best shows we've ever done. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes you have to put that game face on. How do you feel like the hostility at the time of the 80s that was there towards gay and queer people and AIDS? And do you think that that galvanized all the sort of pop stars in that moment? And how did that affect your sort of performance and how you were out there in the world? I mean, I was so glad, as I say, to have Jimmy there. You know, I think it would have been different if he hadn't been there. How close were you? Uh, we did loads of things together. We, we weren't particularly close. Our fans were kind of pitched against each other, you know, especially those communard fans. Oh, they're vicious. No, that's not really. But, you know, we used to do quite a lot of benefits and things together at the Daisy Chain in Brixton um, for food 
services and things like that. But um, I just remember kind of being with Jimmy and he came up to me one time and said, oh, Andy, he said, you've got to go out there. He said, you've, you've got to go and you've got to do it. Like, and he meant especially touring in America. He said, you can really do that, you know. And I was like, oh, because I always felt like I was the less political version. I was kind of like the more boy next door version, and which is true, you know, and that was the gripe. But at the same time, you know, I was in London. I kind of come out in London and... I was just discovering for myself the gay scene. I lived in a cooperative house with all other gay people. Uh, one of the persons worked on gay switchboard. One of the persons worked for a homeless shelter in London. So it was like I had a really good kind of gay education, if you like, you know, and would go out with, it was my then boyfriend, but he worked for the pink paper. So we would go out to the clubs and review the clubs. I would take pictures and things. So I kind of felt like I had a good network around me and they were very supportive and older. So I was kind of like the twink, you know. Do you think those mentors are very important yes. for you? Totally, yeah. They were my upbringing. Who were some of those mentors uh, for you? One's no longer around. Jonathan Walters, his name was. Uh, there's a girl called Lisa Power. She's very high up in Stonewall, I think. And Nick Partridge, who worked for the Terence Higgins Trust. They've all gone on to do these things. So I was kind of like the houseboy almost. You know, I was just a singer. And basically did the housework, took speed, cleaned out all the jars and things, you know. It helps. Yeah, it really <laughs> did. And they supported me. I didn't have any money for like half a year. So, yeah, it was a great time. And then, you know, I started making friends through the band. And my gay friends, we're still friends now. How did the bell fit in with, with all this, the bell, which was a famous uh, pub in King's Cross? Well, that was a, quite a political pub. We had one of our first erasure shows there as well, and they wouldn't let Vince's girlfriend come in, so we had to kind of pretend she was gay. <laughs> but they had collections there all the time. You know, we were supporting the miners. They were when they were on strike, uh, supporting the Polish strikers who turned against us, Lech Valenza, I think that was his name, and, and then going up and marching up in rugby in Manchester because one of the police sergeants there had a gay daughter and he was, AIDS is a thing of your own making and, you, and you're going around in a sewer of your own filth and stuff like that. So we went and marched against him. So we were all over the place, you know, collecting. Morrissey would go in there, you know, Mark Armand would go in there, all kinds of people. And I just remember when I first started working with Vince and the first single came out, Who Needs Love Like That, which was a flop, I walked into the bell and he goes, and here's Erasure, Who Needs Love Like That? And it was just as I was walking in. So it was quite funny. I, mean, I used to dance all the time then. People would ask me if I was a dancer. I mean, listen, it's one of my favorite pastimes. I was going to ask you, what do you see now that reminds you of that time? I mean, do you see a moment right now in the queer world and all the sort of hatred that's been flying around? Does it remind you somewhat of, of that moment? Um, it doesn't remind me because I'm in a different mindset now. In some respects, I think, well, I've done, not that I'm done with the gay scene, but I'm done with being a political person or whatever. And I think it like, I don't want to keep doing that all the time because we've done it already. You know, I just think it's time to pass the baton on. I mean, you guys are one of the most prolific pop duos ever. I mean, how many songs do you think you've written? Well, we've had like 19 original albums and then 
probably about three solo albums. So about maybe 500. But then when you look at like Elton, for instance, he's like had 51 albums or something like that. So I think like, well, we've still got a fair few to go. We wrote together we 20 years ago. Thought it was uh, you. Thought it was you um, yeah. off of your album Electric Blue, your solo yeah. record. We had a lot of fun. I remember us. It was a very hot day yes. in New York City. And yeah. we were in the first Little Scissors studio, which yeah. was Baby Daddy's apartment. And you and I had such a great time. Yeah. Came up with those lyrics first. Yeah. I think you already had the chorus, but we came up with the yes. verses together. Yeah, I love that. And your lyrics are kind of very limericky, aren't they? They can be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When we were coming up with the title for the series, we debated whether or not to use the word queer because yeah. some people don't personally identify with it. How does the word queer sit with you now? Um, to be honest, I've never really been enamored with the word. I can understand why people might want to use it because in the first place, it's kind of, you know, it was insulting and it was reclaimed and, in, and it's really punk. Uh, but I thought it was punk. You know, it was punk then, but now it's overused. I think it's very much, I mean, I don't like to differentiate, but it's, I think it's overused in straight hip society. And I, you know, you just see it in ID magazine and all these things. And I just think it's like not their word. Mm. You know? Yeah, it feels like it's been co-opted yeah. in a large way. When you look back at everything, what are you most proud of? It sounds really corny, but I'm just proud of being me. And you should be. I think you don't realize when you're starting out how ahead you are you know when you're a kid I think especially when you're a gay kid because you don't fit in with everybody you really have to forge your own path and it's so true and your brain develops in a different yeah. way and you develop different yeah. tastes you end up kind of advanced in certain yeah. ways that you wouldn't have necessarily been if you had been yep. straight to finish I just I want to ask you what it is like to perform a little respect when you get up there and you sing it how do you feel well, I mean, it's one song, A Little Respect, that I've never been fed up with, you know, because lots of the songs, not lots of them, but some of them, you do get fed up with singing them. But yeah, I love singing it because, again, it sings itself. You know, the whole audience is singing along, so they lift you up. And um, yeah, and also it's a great workout, you know, to do the whole show, to work up to that high D at the end of this, <laughs> to me. <laughs> got to be warmed yeah, up. Yeah, <laughs> you've got to be warmed up. And once I hit that note, I'm just like, whew. Well, I want to thank you for hitting that note and for being such an inspiration. And I wouldn't be the person I am today without you. And I, you know, I, I think that you are truly a, a pioneer in pop music and I really appreciate it. And well, thank you. Thank you, Jake. <laughs> I think we might have lowered it to a C. <laughs> sometimes you gotta do it that's all for this time and thanks to the magnificent Andy Bell it was so fun to talk to him and what I found especially fascinating in this chat was when Andy spoke about the scene he emerged from in London and how it formed the foundation that his career and songs are built on I'll be back next week with this queen there was never any sort of reference to female body parts that was like, here I am, like it was more like suck my dick, you know, all the time. Love to see every kind of person say sucking on my titties, because we all have titties. That is the genderqueer legend that is Peaches, and we will be talking about her iconic track, Fuck the Pain Away. Trust me, you really don't want to miss out on that. So follow, subscribe, and spread the word. And leave me a review, because I'd love to know what you think of the series. But meanwhile, let's have a listen to the real thing. Here's Erasure with a little respect. 
try to discover 